Criminal Magic, Chapter 27. Thursday, 9.23, GMT-8. Once the unseen becomes visible, well dot 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 sometimes that's when the trouble really starts. The farmer's market is a study in creative chaos. Vendors struggle and compete with one another, each sweating to maintain design integrity, replacing an element lost to sale, filling the void with another carrot or rare piece of citrus, screwing a brilliant yellow-eared late corn or summer squash into a divot left by shoppers unconcerned with presentation. The wind off the river provides a wintry chill, making the produce on offer seem all the more precious in light of the oncoming season. Regardless of her unfamiliarity with many of the items on display, Luce is struck by the absolute familiarity of the ambrosia of scents that perfumes the atmosphere, the utter sameness of markets across time, stretching back to the days of her great-great-grandmother, and farther still. She makes her way down the main aisle of the market, sidestepping mounds of discarded leaves, peels, and translucent onion skins. As much as Luce enjoys the sensation and energy of the trade and barter, she's here for some quite particular things. Her eyes scan every recess of the stalls until she sees what she is looking for. She acquires two bunches of large cabbage leaf, a bag full of painfully crimson peppers, and a dozen deep purple eggplants. She pays and moves out of the crush of people as quickly as she can, off away from the river towards a more secluded area. Pressures on the system are building. The time to act has come. Answer is already gone. Luz can still hear the rasp of annoyance that grated coordinator's voice when she discovered this. That son of a bitch just can't get inside any deal, can he? She had sounded angry as usual, but also somehow resigned, becoming accustomed, no doubt, to the vagaries of a personality Luz had long ago released. But whatever passes between the two of them is none of her concern, really. There can only be distraction on that path, and there is no room, given the overall importance of the struggle working on a higher plane. She walks through an alley between two slightly misshapen industrial buildings, emerging in a field that is largely vacant, with the exception of two giant perforated steel cylinders lying on their sides. Luz puts her package down roughly in the center of the field and begins circling, scouring the area for anything she can burn. She collects a series of scraps and molds them into a small teepee, then lights the structure with a match. Soon the bundle is flaming furiously. She kneels and fans the purple spray of cabbage leaves on the ground and then scatters the peppers on top. She plunges her thumb into an eggplant's meaty body and rips away a long strip of dense flesh. Repeating the process with all the others, the fire is snapping and popping, its embers leaping away like sprites. Each portion of the ritual is performed with a tranquil and fluid economy of motion. She arranges the strips of eggplant lengthwise on pieces of cabbage. Luz bends forward, gathering the far edge of the most distant leaf, rolling the whole thing back toward her and forming a bundle. She wraps one fist around the base of the rough cone and cinches the top with the other hand. Holding the bundle out at arm's length, Luz bends on one knee and raises the package up. She slaps the bundle once against the outside of her thigh. Clear sight, she says in a deep voice. Clear mind. She slaps the bundle again, against her leg once more, stands, approaches the fire, and drops it into the flames. Rise, be seen, be true. The blessing is as much as she can do to aid her friend. She quenches the fire with dirt from the field and walks back toward the riverbank, turning her back on the moment and focusing her attention on the upcoming next few hours. Thursday, 9.25, GMT-8. The day before coordinator had already begun to reconsider the number of aiders. The more she thought about it, the less she wanted the mess she could see building around the command and control problems. Matching a patterned and well-honed routine of a professional squad with an amateur vibe at the ten or so Newtowner tribesmen began to feel like a nightmare. Better off with a more manageable squad than too much of a good thing. Avi, she said into the phone, 
I hate to seem like an ingrate, but the situation on the ground here tells me it'd be a whole lot of mess if we tried to insert as many folks as I asked for into the contact zone. I know it's kind of late, but... Avi's voice showed no sign of exasperation. You are the tactical commander on site, coordinator. We are certain you can ascertain better than we what you'll need to solve the problem. Tell us what you want, and we will, of course, accommodate. Coordinator chuckles. All right, real good, Avi, she said. Think I could get a glass of Chardonnay with that? Room temp, if it's not too much trouble. In the end, she cut the order by half, back to Kieran's original number. Twenty would have to be enough. Since they were already in transit by the time she figured everything out, Coordinator just told Avi to park the rest outside Seattle. Use them or lose them didn't seem to apply in this case. And besides, as a rule of thumb, it's always good to have reserve power. Getting on site without waking up Kohler's security forces was a serious hurdle. Coming in by air would be a guaranteed loser. Those boys were sure to have technical gear that would lacquer them up like a whorehouse bathroom. And of course, in this particular situation, where he might actually have been useful, Answer had already flown the coop, without saying a word. He may have said something to lose, but Coordinator doubts it. And anyway, that would be about as useful as telling a secret to a tree. She realizes that there's a tinge of jealousy to her irritation with his methods. There are times, like right now, for instance, when Coordinator would love to jump the track and take care of business on her own. Collie worked around the stealth insertion hurdle by getting his hands on two big-ass tractor trailers registered to the association. He and his boys are full of surprises, Coordinator tells herself. Mr. Lofi, on the other hand, has been tucked away somewhere enjoying a good night's sleep while she and the twenty-odd other out-of-luck motherfuckers stuffed inside big rigs headed toward the Diablo resupply depot, freezing their asses off in the dark. Coordinator worries a little about the lack of sleep taking the edge off her crew. She makes it plain to all of them that even if they're dragon-tired, they have to put off using stim packs until they're a hell of a lot closer to the fire zone. I don't want to find myself tied into a serious scrum, she says, and stuck with a backup of overcooked wireheads. Save the gear for the right time. The pros take her seriously enough, and even the Newtowners seem to know good advice when they hear it. Smuggling themselves from Portland to Seattle and then up to Diablo was the safest way to go. Coordinator liked the plan because it was absurdly simple, and it was the only way that they would leave them with their major advantage intact. If stripped of all other elective advantages and forced to choose a single tactical tool, she'll always take surprise. The fundamentals always see you through. Even an overwhelmingly outnumbered and outgunned force can win any given contest if they're in possession of that singular asset. She plants her boot in the crumbling choss of the incompetent rock they're traversing and pushes off hard. Rumor is it that the old trail, off somewhere a kilometer or more above them, was bad enough. Over 1,500 meters of gain in less than 10 clicks just to get to their lookout, and that's a ways below their objective. She steadies herself, shifting her weight onto the hand she's planted in the skidding shale debris. Getting into town was easy, she thinks. Staying out of sight now that we're on the ground, that's going to be the hard part. Kohler's boys have the high ground, and no doubt they posted watchers at the abandoned fire tower. Ahead, the others are strung out across the wooded hillside at 100 meter intervals. They're all in greys. The forest is dense enough that she can't see more than three ahead or three behind, which is good. Kali suggested that they integrate the Newtown component with the aiders takes a hell of a lot of skid out of the command. Everything will come down from her. It amazes her how flexible the guy can be when it comes to subordinating his ego. Coordinator's got Pop Running Point, a squat, nasty-seeming Kiwi tracker with some wicked Maori tattoos. She has the feeling that nothing serious will get by her and her team. Coordinator stops and draws a deep breath of air into her lungs, holding onto it for just a moment longer than usual. Crisp. Clean. A little nod to herself as she starts off again. Her blood begins to warm to the idea of a little gussel in the high mountain fresh air. Thursday, 12.43, GMT-8. 
A hundred meters downslope from Answer, a bighorn mountain goat scans the desperately steep mountainside, flouting the angle of repose with its stiff forelegs seemingly bolted to the narrow ledge of a boulder. It raises its majestically shaggy head, inhaling unseen messages written on the wind, sensing predators, kin, weather. Answer knows he is upwind, well within the magnificent animal's keen sense of smell. Well, here's the real test, he thinks. Now we'll see how good my camo is. He sits still and slows his breathing to a bare minimum. Cold air cascades down the mountain. The goat rises ever so slightly onto its hooves and leans forward, swinging its attention toward the upwind terrain. It waits, scans, but finds nothing out of place. After a moment more, the goat shakes its head and soars with an effortless leap off the boulder and out of sight downhill. Answer pulls a deep breath. Just a handful of ash. He's satisfied with the camo. Less than a half cup of pit ash from a long unused trailside fire has given him the coloration and alkalinity he needs to achieve practical invisibility in the surroundings. Dark clothing smeared with burnt wood. In another time, it would not be unthinkable for him to be in pursuit of the mountain goat, rather than simply checking its reaction. Whatever works is good. The position of the sun looks like nearly one o'clock. Answer's been on the trail since eight. He drops the backpack, flops the top flap back, and consults the sourdough quadrant map taped to the inside. He lays his compass on the outstretched topo, confirming that his bearings are spot on. From where he stands at the heavily bouldered ridge leading up the mountain, the horizon is dominated by sourdough's lumpy peak and the sway-backed series of naked ridgelines lying off its flank like stone tethers, gone slack in God's hand. Making good time, considering it's so steep, his mind idly observes. He rises, grabs an apple from a side pocket, slings the pack over his shoulder, and begins once again moving up and off to the northeast. Gotta be in place and huddled up in a couple hours. Need to relax before sunset. Off to the east, high above the 3,000-meter summit, invisible winds rip the clouds, twisting and stirring them into shredded whirlpools. Answer wonders if the darkening warns of foul weather, but his nose brings him no information. Doesn't really matter anyway, other than the fact that it's always more pleasant not to work in the wet. On the other hand... There's nothing he can do about it. He moves off, setting his course to keep him high enough on the mountain's flank so as to be well above the tree line most of the time. Highly unlikely Kohler's scouts will be expecting a solo act to wing in from above. Thursday, 12.49, GMT minus 8. Lewis lags behind the others. Her movements are languid, as if the effort required to move her body along the shifting bushwhack trail were no more than she would offer to an early morning stroll across a level beach. As she moves through a particularly dense copse of fir, she stops. There, in the deep, perpetual shadow of the understory, she lets the details of the immediate world saturate her eyes. Everywhere, the topsy-turvy of blown-down graying brush and crumpled limbs obscures the forest floor in an angular tangle of decay. She moves to stand in front of a ragged stump that juts probably three meters into the air. The old stob, hollowed by the concerted attack of microbes, insects, and weather, offers a conical shrine for the searing white beauty of a single Canadian dogwood blossom rooted on its inner surface. Here is the promise of the world. She kneels on the wet detritus, awed by the singular beauty on display in the dark vastness of the ancient forest. Mosquitoes begin to swarm, but they do not approach her. She rises slowly from her practiced observation, moving along, knowing that she must not fall too far behind. To be so far removed from the group will leave all, her, all of them more vulnerable. Before starting out, she closes her eyes and murmurs below her breath, Shanti Sujanat. It's a prayer that summons the voices of all the wild creatures, a call to herself to pay attention to what they will tell her. As she steps from the cover of the trees, emerging onto a light patch of ground protected on all sides by the forest windbreak, 
Her eyes fall on a flush of wild strawberries. She recalls Anser telling her that the hectic, autumnal red of their ragged-edged leaves is the product of anthocyanins meant to shade them from the unusual excesses of light flooding this particular place as they produce the flush of sugars needed to bring fruit from blossom. Funny how explanations sometimes do not clarify. The thumbnail-sized berries struggle to reach maturity before the first deep snows claim the ground, and their beauty is wordless, beyond explanation. It's only too bad that on this day there is not more time to spend in the light of such transcendental loveliness. She stands and rejoins the others, walking on towards a far less attractive goal. Thursday, 1408, GMT-8 Anticipation. Desire mixed with promise. Still savors the sensation. The experience of the short walkers, their emotional workings, is another unique byproduct of his merged being. Standing on the top step of the security building's low porch, still appears to be appreciating the beauty of the creek that tumbles through the center of the camp. In reality, he is considering how many of his present cohort will be alive and celebrating the fruits of their labors in the next 24 hours. He steps from the low stoop and walks over to the edge of Lake Sourdough's outlet creek. He bends until he is on one knee, looking intently at the water. He knows that his inner life, the truth of what is taking place, cannot be seen will not be revealed by even the closest examination of what he portrays as fact. He bends further, placing his face only a few centimeters above the crystalline torrent bubbling past in front of him. He cups his hands around his eyes and breaks the surface of the rushing water with the sides of his palms. Within the break in the current caused by the hand's edges, there appears effectively a window. Kohler peers intently into the clear space. For a period of two or three minutes, he doesn't move. Then, seemingly satisfied, He rises to his feet and heads toward the main laboratory. The life there in the creek is something like my own now, he thinks. He knows there are numerous living creatures that make their home in the water. He's seen them, but he saw nothing while he was watching. Sometimes even a close examination may not reveal what you are certain is there. This way of being, far from mystifying him, incites daily reflection on how best to use the isolation that embodies the short walker's state of mind. Halfway across the alpine meadow that separates security from the labs, he stops abruptly. A certain familiar sensation courses briefly through him, and his head rolls back on his shoulders as he draws a deep breath. The feeling was like an impulse, a low impedance trickle, a cue. They'll be here soon. He opens his eyes and quickens his step, convinced by the feeling in the air that certain mechanisms are ready to be engaged. The certainty of still pushing aside the emotional awareness he has been engaging in to assess the shortwalker's aptitudes. Self-indulgence has no place in the Longbones world, still may be mixed in with them now, but he has not become one of them. On the contrary, he thinks, soon enough, some of them will become me. He stops at the exterior lab door and looks around. Soon enough, the Cayman will have a new tribe. The single mind will emerge again. He feels the faint signal of proximity. Let them come. I'm ready. Thursday, 1747, GMT-8. Answer drops his pack and strips his clothes off in the lee of an enormous boulder, trying to stay out of the chill wind. He opens up a liter bottle filled with a waxy substance and starts methodically smearing it over every part of his body except his face. The temperature has dropped dramatically in the half hour since sunset. Despite the fact that the heavens have taken on the leaden color of a storm, a magenta aura patinates the sky right at the horizon. Once he's completely greased up, Answer grabs the roll of cling wrap and winds it around his torso, arms, and legs. Under his breath, he grumbles complaints, as if he was cursing the actions of some mentally defective building manager who had refused to fix the wall heater. 
This trick, while savagely efficient as a means of conserving body heat without the encumbering mass of thermal clothing, has one real downside. As far as he is concerned, lard stinks. When Rene Tall first showed him this portable cold-weather solution, he kept saying, Don't you worry, sonny Jim. This here little game gonna make you a good to ten below, no buttons to push. Jesus, Rene, answered Moan. This shit stinks like month-old duck meat. Rene had looked genuinely offended, as he did from time to time. No, 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 my little friend. You'll sniff off the track there. This here lard is stinkless as your mama's ass. As Answer is standing behind the boulder, pulling on his clothing, a freshet of wind ruffles the stark branches of the low-lying heather matted on the hill below his hideout. Perhaps 200 meters downslope, a group of three men are making their way east. He stops dressing, standing with his shirt pulled partway over his head. He can hear their rock skittering hurry, sliding sideways as fast as they can, trying to avoid getting shit bucket wet. He stands, arms raised skyward as if summoning gods he does not believe in, until the clatter of loose rocks skating down, pushed off the trail by careless feet, recedes completely into the distance. Once dressed, Answer quickly lays out the items in his bag, the order of their inclusion being a stratified layering based on the likelihood of their utility. He shoulders the bag and slowly makes his way higher on the mountain face. Better go a little off-run than have to start mixing things up before I'm ready. As he moves, his mind replays for him the image of the men passing below. Believing is, apparently, everything. Thursday, 2028, GMT-8 Pop lies on her belly next to Coordinator, shivering slightly. The minute the sun went down, the ambient temp fell right off the bar. Coordinator doesn't know exactly how cold it is, but she does know that she's freezing her ass off. The ground sucks heat from the two prone women. Every passing minute leaves them colder at the core. Though they're stargazers, they can see minute leakages of light escaping from around sealed doors and windows in the encampment below. An infant moon has only enough light to reflect itself in the lake that lies at the heart of the narrow valley. Where are the outliers? Pop's question crackles into Coordinator's earpiece so soft it's barely audible. Coordinator doesn't bother uttering an answer because she doesn't have one. She's been wondering the same thing. We should have been in a firefight half an hour ago, she thinks to herself. She rolls onto her back. Tom. Collie, your boys flanked out to the north and west, she calls. The thorax mic ensures the conversation is private. The leaders of both squads call back affirmative. Any sentry sign? Nada, says Tom. A moment later, Collie calls in. Anyone for some parcheesi? Coordinator does not spare a smile. This shit is wrong. A chill, unrelated to contact with the heat-sucking earth, wraps itself around Coordinator's head. Double fuck. By now, if this was my keep, we'd have set off sound and motion detectors and be up to our kneecaps in crossfire. This is not good. Everybody jacked up to the max and nobody to cap. She keys her throat mic again. Advanced by 200 meter increments, everyone heads up. Very heads up. I don't know what's going on down there, but let's keep our asses tight. This ain't right, she thinks to herself. No fucking way. On the other hand, there's only one way to find out. Give it a blast. Not long until we know for sure. And the hammer falls toward the anvil. Thursday, 2031, GMT minus 8. Answer is moving quickly but carefully, pacing his steps to minimize rock slide and covering himself with an aluminized Mylar firefighter's tent to keep the infrareds from making him. One of his footfalls slips slightly, but not in a way that feels like dirt. He bends down to look in his step pattern and finds the highlighted form of a bat lying in his path. Still warm, but dead as a stone. A few steps later, he finds a sparrow. But nothing's happened to me, he thinks. What the hell happened to the bird and the bat? It's too weird to be a coincidence. He walks on, his senses on fire with wariness. A hundred meters farther on, he finds the first one. The dead man looks flash-frozen in mid-stride while pointing out a particularly interesting celestial formation, 
right arm extended, legs spread, his eyes wide open. The encounter strikes answer is strangely intimate. The two of them, one recumbent settling into the afterlife, the other vital, a curious standing over the dead, examining a body with infrared eyes. Answer recalls some cultures where social death takes place after the physical event. Prop this guy up on the couch, and he'd still be invited over for dinner. The dead in the house of the living. The glowing form in his image-enhancing eyewear tells Answer the man splayed across the earth at his feet has not been dead more than half an hour. A dead body, particularly in this environment, would lose heat at a ferocious rate, but this man's corpse still lights up the glasses pretty well. Less than a dozen meters separate the first dead man from the bodies of two others. Answer stoops low over the corpses, lying farthest down the hill. He recognizes the hat. It's one of the men he saw earlier with the help of the bird's eye. No blood on any of them. He strips off his glasses and folds the edge of the baked blanket back far enough to expose the dead man's face to the meager light of the heavens. In the vague glow of the new moonlight, the lips seem blue. Cyanotic? Poisoned. A quick check tells him all three are dead of the same cause. Gassed somehow. Shit. They're killing their own. It takes answer less than five seconds to figure out what that implies, and the realization slaps him into action. He pitches the tent aside, stuffs his starlighters into the backpack, and begins hauling ass down the mountainside. As he runs, all he can hope is that he's not already too late. Thank you for joining us. Please come back next week for Chapter 28 of Criminal Magic. If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a rating and review, and let some friends know about us as well. See you next time.